For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Francesca Block. You're listening to Daybreak. For the past seven days, a winter storm has rocked the state of Texas. Millions of people spent days without power as the unanticipated cold snap brought deadly outages to the state's electrical grid. But why Texas? What made this winter storm so catastrophic for them while the rest of the country largely persisted? And what can states do to protect against these disasters in the future? Today, we talk through these questions and more with Jesse Jenkins, an assistant professor at the Adlinger Center for Energy and the Environment. It's Sunday, February 21st. First of all, thank you so much for being here with us today. We want to talk a little bit about an op-ed that you just published in the New York Times last Thursday. So in this op-ed for Texas, you described their power grid system as a, quote, libertarian approach to electricity markets. Can you explain what you mean by this and what makes the Texas power grid different from other states? Sure. There's a pretty wide spectrum of uh, ways in which the electricity sector is regulated and structured across the United States, from you know vertically integrated utilities that do everything from power generation to transmission and distribution and, and are the only permitted you know retailer that sells you your electricity in a given you know geographic area, uh, which is sort of the old school model for, for utilities, but still persists in much of the Southeast and Western United States and, and in municipal and publicly owned utilities as well across a lot of the country. And then there's, on the other end of the spectrum, markets that have liberalized to varying degrees and opened up both generation markets and, in some cases, retail suppliers to competition. So the generators that are producing power are owned by a variety of different companies, and they're all competing in the market to supply electricity. And there are retailers who basically act as brokers for you know you and I or buying you know using electricity, and they sign up a whole bunch of different households and businesses, and then they they participate as sort of middlemen in the market, buying power in the wholesale market over a long term contracts from the generators, and then passing those costs on to their retail customers in various ways, different designs for the rates that they offer. And Texas is really on the far end of that spectrum in the United States with uh, full retail competition. Uh, so everybody has to choose a supplier. There's no default role for the incumbent utilities as there is in New Jersey. So here, New Jersey, when you sign up for power, you're automatically on PSEGs, the incumbent utilities power or as, as the retailer. And then you can choose to opt out of that to a retail competitive retailer. In Texas, you have to go to a competitive retailer. And all of the generation market is competitive as well. And so that leaves the the old conventional utilities as network companies that just run the transmission and distribution networks, which is still a natural monopoly and regulated by the state. But the wholesale markets and retail markets are competitive. And uh, Texas is a fairly hands-off approach to the structure of those markets as well and the role that uh, you know they have over the, the choices that generators make and, and retailers make. And so do you think that that more hands-off approach, that more free market approach, contributed in any way to the disaster that we're seeing today? It may have, and you know, this is a will be a topic that I'm sure we'll have much more inquiry and, and analysis over the next you know few months or even years. Um, my sense is that it, if it did have a factor, to, a role to play, that it is a second or third order factor. The sort of design of the market is much less important than the failure to plan and regulate the market appropriately. And you know, the basic failure is a failure to anticipate the extreme weather conditions that occurred, the very cold uh, and prolonged uh, polar vortex period, which 
not only set electricity uh, and heating demand to record levels, but also wrecked havoc across the energy supply infrastructure, both natural gas wells and pipelines and, and you know, the sort of natural gas side of things and the power generation infrastructure. And so what ended up occurring is that a little bit more extreme weather than Texas was prepared for ended up having a disastrous effect, not just a little bit worse effect, but a, but a disastrous effect. And, and it, because it basically stretched and stressed their system to the breaking point and, and led to prolonged blackouts during, you know, sub freezing temperatures in many cases for, you know, four or five days with, you know, millions of customers without power. And that's really, you know, dangerous conditions. Uh, and, and very, you know, very uncomfortable and scary to live through when your indoor temperatures are, you know, 35, 40 degrees inside your house. And so why did a disaster like this occur in Texas, for example, but not in Minnesota? Yeah, so I think the main issue is that when, uh, you know, weather events and other sort of th- risks or threats are, are fairly common, it's, it's an obvious no-brainer to prepare for them. So in Minnesota, this is a normal winter. And so they're, you know, they're prepared for it. The homes are better insulated. So they're less sensitive. The electricity and heating demand is less sensitive to the cold. They uh, bury pipelines at a lower, you know, lower depth below the ground so that the soil can insulate the pipelines from the colder temperatures. You know, their power plants do winterization measures that, you know, they have heated oils that keep things from freezing up and you know, various measures that you take to prepare for the cold winter. And, you know, we have wind turbines operating in Antarctica and, you know, natural gas power plants in Alaska. So clearly these are not, you know, it's not a technology failure per se, like any of these technologies can work in these extreme conditions. Texas, you know, prepares itself heavily for hot summer heat waves, which have have been the primary driver of demand for electricity and the need for reliable capacity. And these sorts of winter events are just much less common. And so we're not something that you know, really across the board, anybody was planning for, you know, most buildings aren't built to insulate for those kinds of temperatures or have heating, you know, they don't put much investment in efficient heating because you don't use it very often. The power plants don't take as much attention to winterization as they do to preparing for summer events. The natural gas system buries pipelines at a lower depth and the wells that feed into it weren't prepared to continue pumping during uh, cold weather temperatures. So it's really a systemic failure across not just the power sector, but, you know, buildings and individual household decisions and the uh, oil and gas sector itself to consider that this extreme event would would be possible. And even if it was rare, uh, potentially disastrous and worth insuring against. And so you alluded to this a little bit earlier that we're still we, we have ideas, but we're still not positive what could have prevented something like this. But we're still seeing this kind of blame game play out in the political sphere. We're seeing Republicans saying that, you know, maybe it was green energy, maybe it was windmills. We've got Democrats maybe blaming the more free market approach to Texas's power grid system. So we want to hear from you, like, what's your assessment of the local response and of the federal response to this? And also, what do you think of the politicization of this situation? Yeah, the the politicization is is pretty unfortunate, and you know, unfortunately, not surprising given the you know current moment that we're in in the United States. But really, uh, is one of the reasons why I spent all week you know trying to provide factual information to people and in, in the you know journalists in Texas and at news stations there and elsewhere is that you know before any facts were in, many politicians were on you know Fox News and other you know stations saying that this is evidence we can't rely on wind energy and you know this is why the green new deal is a bad idea and you know these are, you know, have nothing to do with what's going on uh, in Texas and and while you know your citizens are literally freezing some of them to death it's pretty um you know i i think pretty appalling to 
you know, be trying to score political points, whether that, again, like you said, is trying to score points on, you know, free market, you know, ideologies or on, uh, on green ideologies. The reality is that this is a planning and regulatory failure. You know, the regulators in the state legislature, you know, didn't require weatherization steps to be taken across the energy supply infrastructure. And all of the actors up and down that energy supply chain, you know, failed to prepare for these sorts of events. The biggest failure comes uh, from natural gas power plants and the natural gas supply system because Texas relies primarily on gas-fired power plants for their winter demand. It's a, the gas plants are supposed to supply about two-thirds of the winter peaking electricity supply during events like this. And you know, 40% of that capacity was offline, uh, either due to failures at the power plants themselves, or I think more commonly, the inability to get fuel due to failures of the natural gas pipeline system and wells that froze up in, in the cold. And so when you're depending on a technology like natural gas or even nuclear, one of the four nuclear reactors in the state went offline for about 36 hours due to a frozen instrumentation gauge that meant they had to be precautious and, and turn off for safety reasons. Uh, um, you know, all of these, these sources that, that Texans were counting on to be there for them, uh, you know, failed in, in, differing, in differing magnitudes. The difference with wind and solar energy is that Texas wasn't counting on them because we know that the weather is variable and we know that the wind can stop blowing and there's a thing called nighttime. Like, that's not a shocking fact. Uh, and so the, you know, system planners in, in Texas don't count on wind and solar to be there, or at least not very much of it, very little of their capacity to be there during these winter events. So when the wind turbines freeze up, it's not a catastrophic failure. When power plants that you depended on to keep the heat going and the lights on fail to you know, have fuel or freeze up and have to shut down, that's when people get stuck freezing in their homes. And, and that's what you know, precipitated this disaster at scale. So I want to turn a little bit to we have like unintentional blackouts, but also there were intentional blackouts across Texas. And I want to turn a little bit to explaining what that was all about. So for those, basically it was, it was a supply and demand issue, right? Where you've got power plants that are going out, you've got increased demand because people's homes, they're cold and they're not insulated. So what was the point of those rolling blackouts? And also what might've gone wrong? Because They may have said 30 to 45 minutes, you'll be left without power. But obviously, for many Texans, it's been a lot longer than that. Yeah. So the the basic dynamic is that electricity systems have to balance supply and demand perfectly at all times, um, you know, with very little tolerance. So if you turn on your light switch or an industrial, you know, factory turns on an assembly line, Power plants have to be prepared to increase their output immediately, and there have to be, you know, if, if somebody turns off something or you lose a transmission line, um, they have to be prepared to ramp down um, as well. So the uh, the reason for that is that the entire grid is actually one synchronized machine. All of the you know the generators are all working together, spinning at the same frequency of sixty hertz, you know, sixty times per second. And as demand, if demand starts to pick up. The generators automatically start to work harder and and spin a little slower then to uh, to try to keep up. Um, and if demand drops, they you know the load that they're working against is a little bit lightened. It's sort of like if you're trying to run up a hill and somebody jumps on your back, right? You're gonna have to work that much harder to keep going the same speed. And if they hop off your back, then all of a sudden you can jog along a lot faster. And it's the same kind of situation for the tur- for the turbines of the you know generators that are that are producing uh, synchronized power. So if demand goes up, they slow down, or they have to work harder to keep up the same frequency. And if demand uh, drops, then they speed up or have to slow down to keep the same frequency. 
And either of those situations can be problematic because if they spin up too, spin too quickly, that can cause damage to the turbines. If they have to work too hard to keep up with the pace of the frequency, then they also um, can destroy the generators. And so they, uh, there's a number of safety you know, switches and protections throughout the system that would automatically that basically monitor the frequency of the alternating current grid. And if they detect a deviation of more than, say, 4 to 10% above and below that 60 hertz point, um, you know, so below 54 hertz or above 66 hertz, they start to, uh, they start to automatically shut down. And that can lead to, to protect themselves from, you know, blowing up the generator, damaging the, the generator. And that's, that shutdown of one generator then puts even more load on all the other generators that are still online. And then they, one of them trips off and it, it leads to a cascading uh, failure of the power plants. And, and that can lead to a statewide blackout, you know, or a system-wide blackout. So what grid operators are always trying to do is avoid that kind of outcome because getting the grid back up from a full blackout takes a very long time. And it's a very difficult dance of coordinating, turning on this power plant first and then that one and this one. Um, so they're always trying to avoid that full on blackout situation. What happened in Texas is that demand went up to a new record high for winter of about 70,000 megawatts. And at the same time, on the middle of the night on Monday, about 1.30 a.m., they started to lose natural gas power plants um, uh, that were generating power at that time. They lost about uh, 30,000 mega, 30, megawatts of capacity uh, relative to that 70,000 megawatts of demand. So they lost 40%, basically, of their 40, 45% of their supply. And the only way to deal with that without uh, system-wide blackout is then to reduce consumption by an equivalent amount. So what system operators have to do is, you know, face this, this dire choice of full system blackout or forced blackouts of certain areas. And so they direct the transmission owners and distribution companies to select parts of their system to turn off. They'll, you know, switch off a transmission or distribution substation or a given power line. And everybody on that line or that's served by that substation is then in the dark. And that's, you know, called emergency load shedding or emergency, um, you know, rolling blackouts. Uh, and it's something that happens very rarely, uh, but it is, uh, and I've never seen anything of this magnitude uh, outside of, you know, hurricanes or something else. So if you're trying to drop consumption by maybe 3%, which is what happened in the summer in California when they had to have rotating blackouts this year, you can, you know, rotate around which substations are turned off and not leave anybody without power for more than you know, 10, 20, 30 minutes, maybe an hour and a half at the most in the case of California. But when you're trying to drop 30, 40% of your consumption, there's not a lot of places to rotate to. Um, each city is managed by a different, um, many of them are managed by different distribution companies, and each one is in charge of implementing their demand reduction plan, emergency uh, uh, demand reductions. And they do them in slightly different ways. So in some places like Austin and Houston, where you have a lot of critical infrastructure like hospitals and uh, fire stations and other emergency services, they chose to keep those areas online all the time. And so then you're trying to drop 40% of consumption and you're trying to keep maybe half of it online. And so there's not a lot of places to rotate to when you take both of those, you know, those into account. And that left a lot of residential areas in the dark for days uh, in, in cities like that. Uh, and so it was, you know, a very tough, uh, you know, choice to make, you know, but how are you going to manage this large magnitude of, of demand curtailment uh, and, and shutoffs? And, and the, you know, the big challenge is just if you're, if you're trying to drop 30 or 40% of demand, it, it, it's, there's nowhere to rotate to, especially when the supply isn't coming back online for days. So you mentioned uh, a little bit that 
for those critical infrastructures, hospitals, places like that, they needed to keep the lights on. And I've also read a couple of different reports saying that there've been certain inequalities that people have noticed in the ways in which the blackout stayed for longer periods of time or where places where the, the city or the state prioritized keeping the power on. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that, how maybe certain underprivileged areas in or around cities, maybe were they kept in the dark longer than other areas? And what do you think is causing that? Yeah, I've not seen any analysis of that, so I can't really comment on the distribution. But I, I think it's an important question to see in hindsight, you know, who, bore, who bears the cost of these sorts of outages uh, and emergencies. And also, if we're thinking about this as a need to basically buy more insurance against these sorts of events in the future, that also is going to raise costs, right? If you want to weatherize uh, your system, you know, you have to invest in upfront costs that are going to, you're going to pay for every month in the hope that they prevent a disaster like this in the future that is much, you know, more costly. And th there are real equity questions as well about who should pay for that and how do we distribute those costs? Because, you know, folks that, that, that have the lowest income are the most likely probably to sign up for a lower rate plan that has a lower average rate, but is also more exposed to these price shocks. Because in order to hedge yourself against these with a retailer, you end up paying more on average in order to avoid the extreme prices that can occur. So I'd be also curious to see at the end of the day, there are going to be some very large electricity bills that people get due to the extremely high prices during this period. And it'll be very interesting to see what the makeup of customers and their you know, demographics uh, on different types of retail rates and who got stuck with the bill uh, and whether that was disproportionately people of lower income as well who are least able to afford to pay it. So there's all kinds of equity implications, who is shut off, who ends up paying the electric bill at the end of this for this extreme event, and who should be paying for the insurance, the you know, higher costs of weatherization to prevent this or other future disasters in the future. And all of those have important equity uh, and justice implications. So once again, looking to the future, at the end of your op-ed in the New York Times, you tell readers that because of climate change, the past can no longer be a guide for the future when it comes to these types of disasters. But a big point you make is that states like Texas need to prepare as a sort of homeowner's insurance that you just kind of mentioned for these types of disasters. So what's our takeaway? What's What are the steps going forward that states like Texas need to do? Yeah, so there is, uh, you know, ongoing scientific analysis and discussion about whether this particular polar, polar vortex phenomenon is linked to climate change. There is a working hypothesis that because the Arctic is warming much faster than the rest of the world, that's reducing the temperature differential between the Arctic and the, the rest of North, you know, the Northern Hemisphere. And that can reduce the, the strength of the polar cell, the, 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 the convection in the atmosphere that keeps polar um, cold temperatures, you know, up there and not down here. Um, and, and we do know that the jet stream has been wandering further south, and that's what allows the cold air to, to move uh, down from Canada into as far as, you know, Texas. Whether that's linked to climate change or not is still an active subject of research. But what we do know is that climate change is driving all kinds of important extreme weather events that threaten our critical infrastructure, including our energy infrastructure. So that includes extreme heat waves and drought and wildfires, which have been a particular challenge in the American West recently. Um, that includes uh, more extreme rainfall events, which uh, have led to you know torrential flooding in Texas, in the Mississippi you know basin, and other parts of the country uh, in North Carolina recently, uh, and coastal flooding 
Um, and, and storm surges have been more extreme as well due to sea level rise and, and, uh, and increased intensity of hurricanes. So all of these challenges linked to climate change mean that we can't really rely on the historical record to tell us what the sort of probability distribution of events are. You know, there's this saying of 100-year floods, right? If you look at, you know, flood maps, that they, they basically rank the risk of a flood occurring in particular areas by once in every 10 years, once in every 50 years, once in every 100 years. What that means is that they think there's a 1% chance of this sort of event happening, so it should only happen once every century. But we're seeing these once in a hundred year events happening every decade in a lot of cases. And that's because the probability distribution is getting changed by climate change. Both the mean or median of those distributions is shifting in many cases, like the average temperature getting warmer. But I think more importantly for planning purposes, the extremes are getting shifted in many cases too. Because our systems are only resilient up to a point. And so one more degree, one more day of drought, one more, you know, cold snap um, uh, can uh, be the difference between a system that's resilient and a system that catastrophically fails like it has in Texas. So I think that the guidance for planning is that we need to think beyond the historical record and beyond the sort of 95th percentile of events and think more carefully about not just is this event likely but if it were to occur, what would be the cost? And if the cost is catastrophic, then it's worth taking out catastrophic insurance, right? And, and that's what we do in our lives as well, right? We pay more every month for, you know, fire insurance for our homes, because if we were to have a fire and lose everything, that would be catastrophic. And so it's worth paying to insure that, however improbable that is, right? We're not, not like we're expecting to have our house burned down. Uh, and so it's the same principle at work here. And, and I think we have to think about what are those events that we just can't really get through or have such a high cost of, of surviving and building back from that we need to pay the insurance, even if it's a rare and unlikely occurrence. And we should think outside the bounds of what we've seen historically and try to anticipate what we might see in a changing climate going forward. Well, Professor Jenkins, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. That's all for Daybreak today. Today's episode was produced by Mark Dodici and me under the 145th Managing Board of The Prince. For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Francesca Block. Have a wonderful day.